All right, good morning. Good morning. Good to see everybody here. Grab a Bible, get to Genesis chapter one. That's easy. You can skip the table of contents this morning. Go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Go to the first chapter in that book, chapter one. We'll be there some today, so we'll start there. We're in a sermon series uh, together um, as a church. We're going through four weeks called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. The premise is that God has created us and that he's made us fearfully and wonderfully. All right. And what we've been doing in this series, and we've been doing it for four weeks, and this is the fourth week, the last week, we have been seeking to expose, seeking to expose the dehumanizing lie of culture about us, about us as people, about our bodies. And so, you know, in week one, we looked at love thy body, and we talked about worldviews. And week two, we talked about the sanctity of human life, treasured from conception. You've got the sermon note insert that you received when you came in, and on the back side of that is a little bit of a overview for the whole series that you can, you can use, where we show the lie and we show the good and hopeful truth of Christianity. And so in week three, we talked about follow your body and the Bible, not just your heart or your attractions. And now this morning, we are looking at a faithful Christian response to transgenderism. The title is, Is Non-Binary Non-Biblical? And so that's where we're going. Some questions that I have, and maybe you've had these questions as we dive into this topic. You know, one thing would just be like, what is the actual percentage of the population who, who are wrestling with these issues, with transgenderism? Is it really big or is it just really big on the news outlets? It's just a fair question. What about the genetic abnormality of intersex or what about the eunuch in the Bible? These are questions that pop into my mind on this topic. I think more than anything, though, I have these, this question right here. Here it is. How should I as a Christian respond on these issues in our culture? You know, issues of bathrooms, issues of sports, issues of preferred pronouns, issues of hormone blockers and surgery for minors. What is a faithful Christian response? And so I'm going to introduce this topic a bit. It's going to be talking and introducing, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into a few passages of Scripture but just right away, you know, what is the dehumanizing lie that we're, we're addressing this morning? And here it is, and it's on the back of your insert there, but it'll be on the screen. And it is this, that your body is an irrelevant factor to be ignored, a constraint to be overcome, and a limitation to be liberated from in discovering your true gender identity. Okay? Remember, we talked about the house, right, with two stories. And on the lower story is your body, your physical body that God made. And on the upper story, the second floor, with no stairs connecting the two floors, is your true self, your authentic self. That's not true, that's, but that's the world. That's the worldview of our world. So here's a quote, and I read this to you from Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body. She says this, listen. Young people today live in a society that prompts them to question their 
psychosexual identity as never before. It's really important that we recognize this. We, many of us, grew up and it was like, hey, what are you going to be when you grow up? You got to think about that, you know? Well, that still happens. But the other questions that are prompted are, what gender are you? Here's a quote from BBC. A transgender youth says, the truth is that gender is in the brain and physical sex is a completely separate and different thing that is private to every individual. Do you see the two-story house there? The body, the true self. It's not true. This isn't the way God made us fearfully and wonderfully. But you see, this is the worldview of the world. She continues, people need to realize it doesn't matter what meat skeleton you're born in. It's what you feel that defines you. So just remember, gender is what you feel, not what your parts are. Don't be afraid to be yourself. You see, this is not me preaching. I'm reading quotes to you so that you can see the dehumanizing worldview as it comes at us. Here's a quote from a parent who wrote a letter to a columnist. He said, as a parent living the nightmare, and this is this parent's opinion, okay, just to be clear. As a parent living the nightmare of having a teen who suddenly announces she's transgender, I can tell you there are no doctors who will do anything but agree. There is no science behind this. There's no way to medically diagnose her. Three of her closest friends have already had a full transition paid for their, by their parents, so it's difficult for her to understand why we won't do the same. It's no different, listen, than having your child captured by a cult. Eighty to ninety percent of children who experience some incongruence in their birth sex and their sense of their gender lose those feelings before adulthood. Eighty to ninety percent. Yet trans affirming therapists insist that even exploring why a young person who has gender dysphoria might have it is offensive, bigoted, and transphobic. This is a real matter, a real issue. How do we respond faithfully as Christians? Let me give you some terminology real quick. Again, long introduction, but it's needed. And let me even just challenge you if you're tempted to kind of just sort of, you know, space out right now. You know, listen, remember, if you're a Christian, God came and met you where you are at. You know, and so it's important that we be conversant, that we understand the necessary terminology to bring to bear a Christian perspective and worldview to all the people around us. So let's just think for a moment about some of these terms. Transgender, all right? You've heard that word before, I trust. That is an umbrella term. Mark Yarhouse, an author, says, for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. So it is a big umbrella term. Like imagine the beach umbrella that you put out and put seven towels underneath so everyone can have their space. It's an umbrella term with many things beneath it. Transgender. How about some statistics about that term? 
Overall, in the U.S., 1.3 million adults identify as transgender. That is 0.5% of the population. 300,000 youth identify as transgender. That is 1.4% of the population. And there's a big rise in the youth. What do you think out of the 50 states in our country is the highest percentage of transgender adults? I'll tell you. It's North Carolina. North Carolina is the highest. Almost 1% of adults would claim to be transgender. Random fact, Iran is the highest sex reassignment surgery country in the world. Does that surprise you? Well, it's because homosexuality is illegal. Next term, birth sex. What is birth sex? Like, what do we even mean? Because we're going to be using terms like your birth sex or your gender. In the talk today, birth sex, we're just refreshing. You may know these things. Hopefully you do. So this is either of the two major forms of individuals that occur in many species and that are distinguished respectively as female or male, especially on the basis of their reproductive organs and structures. And so just think about this for a second. Differentiators between male and female. There are really like four. Chromosomes is one. So men have a Y chromosome. Another one is internal reproductive organs. There's external sexual anatomy, and there's even levels of hormones, right? And those hormones produce characteristics. Testosterone is higher in men, estrogen in women. And so there are four factors that differentiate male from female. And I say that only to say, if you think about it, there really is no such thing as a sex change. There is not currently a procedure that can change your chromosomes. And so maybe for the sake of accuracy, we should avoid that term. There are a lot of other synonyms you can use anyways. What is intersex? Well, that's a term that's used for 16 or so medical conditions, all right? And it's a very misused concept in this conversation. It has to do with people that have atypical chromosomes and sexual anatomy. Just know that it's 1.7% of the population that would be considered intersex. And just know that it's 1% of the 1.7% that have any of the abnormalities that you might be thinking about that would even be possibly relevant to this conversation. Just know that it's really not a subject we need to go into, and it's actually offensive to intersex people when they are used as sort of proof of something in this debate or conversation. Moving on. Gender. What do we mean when we say gender? Why do we even say gender and birth sex? Why the two terms? Gender, Merriam-Webster says, the behavioral, cultural, or psychological traits typically associated with one's sex. So just watch for this. As you consider interacting with our world and the worldviews in our world, most people talk about their birth sex. That's the first story of the house. And then the second story where your true and authentic self is found and discovered is your gender. Biblically, we believe that birth sex and gender are connected. Non-binary. 
This refers to a range of identities that are not exclusively male or female. Okay, you've heard non-binary before. Terms like genderqueer, pangender. You guys, are you okay? You with me? Huh? I'm telling you, I, I, I challenged you at the front of this because I knew what it would feel like. You got to lean in, though, because we've got to be able to engage our world. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. We've got to be able to bring to bear good news to these topics that are so prevalent. Gender dysphoria. What is that? This is an interesting term. The word dysphoria, if you think about it, it means to have a bad feeling. Euphoria is feeling good. Dysphoria is feeling dissed. Bad feelings. You know, in the in the um, in 2013, the sort of the Bible for psychology, the the DSM, they changed their terminology in 2013. The this sort of package of issues, the transgenderism stuff, used to be referred to as gender identity disorder, and they changed it to dysphoria in 2013. Okay, think about that. Just think about that shift. So we're going from treating a disorder to treating your negative feelings about your situation, right? Now, transition. Let's talk about transition. This is the last term. Sometimes this is called a sex change or a sex reassignment. When a person takes steps to transition socially, hormonally, or surgically, or all three, that's what this is about, okay? And so, so this is where they're going from their birth sex to the gender that they more identify with. Make sense? So, all right, just a couple more things, then we're going to pray. A girl named Kat does not like to be called she. Strongly dislikes it. She's a Christian, but she struggles with gender incongruence. She says, and I quote, I don't belong in a men's room. And yet when I go into the women's room, some women think I'm a guy and start yelling at me. It's a lose-lose situation. When I'm at church, I don't drink coffee, even though I love coffee. I try to do whatever it takes to avoid that stressful situation of having to pee. What does dysphoria feel like? Gender dysphoria. One person says, and I quote, an electric current through my body. That caused my joints to ache, my stomach to turn, my hands to shake, nausea in the most severe moments. Laying in bed at night, it feels like the electric circuits in my body don't quite match up. Like cramming two wrong puzzle pieces together. This is the feeling. Some people say 20, some 40% of trans adults have already attempted suicide. We need... As one author says, less outrage and more outrageous love. Lord, help us. Let's pray, and then we're going to get into God's Word. Lord, we bow before you. We pray, God, that you would use uh, the people here this morning. You would use this church to be a loving, to be a welcoming, to be a gospel-holding-forth church. Lord, help us to know the compassion that you have shown to us. Lord, help us to feel and sense the wisdom from your word that you're guiding us with. Lord, help us to have clarity in our convictions. Lord, help us 
to be compassionate as you have been with us. Lord, help us to have courage. Courage to point people to your will and your ways and to what is best for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is non-binary non-biblical? That's the question. That's the title. So it's really simple this morning. We're just looking at some passages. We're looking at Genesis. The first point is Adam and Eve. All right? So turn to Genesis 1 if you're not already there. Just a foundational passage, a fundamental part of Scripture here. Let's read it. It says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let me just say something real quick. There's some pronoun stuff going on in just in this verse. Okay, there is. Um, and sometimes people say, oh, this is the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all talking. Let us make man in our image. And maybe it is. But it also, and I think more, the more helpful way of understanding it is this is royal language of the royal court of the throne of God speaking in the royal plural. It's awesome. Just letting you know about that. Got to have integrity as we talk about pronouns. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So just some basic fundamental things here. The first thing is this. And it's, I think it's key that we not just skip past stuff, right? God created humanity. God created humanity in his image. These passages are not myths or fables. They're not intended to just be random stories. This is paradigm setting for people who believe in God. God created humanity in his image. God created humanity in his image, watch this, as two different binary, binary just means there's two choices, as male and female, as two different binary and complementary sexes. We see in verse 28, God, do you see it? God blessed his creation of humanity as male and female. He blessed it. And he gave them a command. What's the command? Do you see it? The command is procreation. He gave them a command that could only be fulfilled because of their God-given different bodies. 
their sense of gender according to their brains would not come together and procreate. It wouldn't. God gave them a command, procreation, that could only be fulfilled because of their God-given male and female bodily differences. And then in verse 31, which I skipped to in red because I wanted to be sure to show it to you, the account of creation in Genesis, it's like a CD that's skipping. Do you all know what a CD is? CD? It's a CD that's like skipping. Because at the end of each day, it's like it was good. It was good. Day three, it was good. Day four, it was good. God then says, it's not good for man to be alone. And then at the end of the creation of humanity, as different, as complementary, as binary, as male and female, God says in the CD, stop skipping, it's very good. It's very good. Adam and Eve. What about Jesus? I want to turn now to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 3 through 5. So the story here is some Pharisees uh, come up to Jesus, and it says in verse 3, they came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So these Pharisees, you know, they're trying to kind of catch Jesus in a snare. They don't like him. They're not for him. And they come up to him and they're like, let me ask you a moral and legal and gender related question, Jesus. And let me tell you what Jesus does not say before we look at what he says in verse four. He does not say, well, you know, guys, you guys know I don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve. So let's talk about some of the more recent thought leaders. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, let's consider, uh, we can't consider something from thousands of years ago because they were in a different cultural moment than our cultural moment and what was applicable for them doesn't apply for us, so let's not deal with that. No, he doesn't say that. What does he do? He goes straight to Genesis. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read? It's amazing. Like The Pharisees have like the Bible memorized. And Jesus is like, do you guys read? You guys read, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So there it is. Is non-binary, non-biblical, just ask Jesus. And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two, that is those two, that is the male and the female that God created, those two shall become one flesh. Here's what's happening. Jesus quotes verbatim from Genesis 1 through 2. Why'd you do that, Jesus? Because he viewed what it taught about men and women as relevant, as authoritative, and as helpful to the moral, social, and legal issues of his day. It's the same today. Adam and Eve and Jesus. And now faithful Christian responses. This third point is a way for us to interact now that we have considered some really fundamental biblical truth. Now interact with some of these issues that come up with transgenderism. Faithful Christian responses. Let's talk first about drag. 
drag um, cross-gender expression or cross-dressing. Just know that when it comes up in the Bible, which it does, it is viewed negatively. Dressing like the other gender, acting sexually like the other gender, embracing culturally specific other gender expressions, the biblical prohibition of the man bun in 1 Corinthians 11, all these things, they're all there. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay? My point is just that the Bible does address cross-gender expression and where it does express it, and it does in multiple places and ways. It views it negatively. The reason it's important and helpful to show the posture of the Bible toward this cross-gender behavior is because we need to see how clear the Bible is about accepting one's birth sex as not irrelevant to, but as formative and directional to one's sense of self and identity. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. When God says, put off the old self, he doesn't leave you there. He says, put on your new self in Jesus Christ. So a faithful Christian response to this matter would be first to be compassionate, not condescending toward the reasons a person may desire to cross-dress. However, we must be consistent. And remember that this practice goes against what you, Christian, believe about God fearfully and wonderfully making a person's body as male and female and that them accepting and expressing their God-given male or female identity is what most honors themselves and is what most honors God who fearfully and wonderfully made them. That's drag. Faithful Christian responses to some of these topics. How about gender stereotypes? Gender stereotypes. This requires some careful thinking. An American trade journal in 1918, titled Pink or Blue, says, and I quote, Pink, being a decided and stronger color, is more suitable for a boy. They go on to say blue is for girls. Okay? The point is that this stuff is cultural. Many stereotypes are cultural, and they change. Let me read you this because this is so critical from Nancy Piercy. She says, the irony is that it is precisely rigid stereotypes, listen, that drive gender nonconforming young people into the arms of the transgender or gay communities in search for a sense of belonging and acceptance. She continues, Christians should be on the forefront of creative thinking to recover richer definitions of what it means to be a man or woman. The church should be the first place where young people can find freedom from the unbiblical stereotypes, the freedom to work out what it means to be created in God's image as holistic and as redeemed people. Think of Jacob in the Bible. Definitely an endorsement 
had more affinity for his mother, for cooking, for the kitchen. And Esau, hairy and manly, an outdoorsman. Who got the blessing? Who's the patriarch? Think of David and his friendship that we read about in the Old Testament with Jonathan. He's playing the harp. He's writing poetry, this David. Him and Jonathan are exchanging manly kisses on the cheek like Italian bros. You know, that's what they're doing. And yet he's a fighter who killed Goliath. Think of Jesus in Luke 13. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings and you are not willing. What's that? Jesus is basically saying, oh, I just want to mother you so bad right now. That's what he's saying. I don't know for sure if that's what he's saying. But it's helpful for thinking about these stereotypes. Okay, Um, Think of Paul, who says that to the Thessalonians, he was like a nurturing mother in his ministry. And so you're like, dang, that's it right there. But he also is comfortable being the nurturing mother, yet also comfortable with deploying the stereotype that mothers are nurturing. So, yeah, that's helpful in many ways. Titus 2, people are addressed as Christian men, as Christian young men, as Christian women, as Christian young women. There are differences. We have to think carefully about stereotypes. All stereotypes are not bad. You know, even when I say stereotype, do you not automatically think, oh, that's a bad thing? I think we often do. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a stereotype or type of person. Well, the word is not evil or wicked. It's not a wrong thing automatically. The word literally means, like, steros means solid plus type. It's a method of printing from a solid plate. Literally, Merriam-Webster says it's, a, it's something conforming to a fixed or general pattern, a plate cast from a printing surface. Okay? I think we need to think carefully about stereotypes as believers to be careful that we're not harmful with them, but that we don't abandon them altogether. I'll show you this picture, this little graph, just to help us think about it. I thought a lot about this part of the sermon this week. So just consider stereotypes at the top and that being like not always a negative thing. But think about it in terms of maybe there are biblical patterns that we are to rightly observe. And then there are cultural stereotypes or patterns that can be either harmful or helpful, depending. So I'll give you some examples of the biblical. First off, with, with, with the biblical patterns or stereotypes, there, there is the general and core calling upon men and women toward biblical manhood and womanhood. And just because there's an abuse of stereotypes in the world or in churches sometimes doesn't mean we were moving away from that. We're not. God doesn't just call us to be godly. He calls us to be godly men or to be godly women. And there are pointers and, and ways that the Bible defines that for us, and we're not moving away from that. I think even more importantly is the fact, look at that other one under biblical, that God calls us to be men or women who reflect his image in the time and space where we are. Does that make sense? Which kind of brings you over to the cultural stereotypes. 
It kind of brings you over to the place where you have to consider your time and space. And there are harmful stereotypes like men don't cry or women can't drive or men are just sort of sex-crazed goofballs. Harmful. Unhelpful. But there might be helpful stereotypes. That is, we consider the calling that God has placed on our lives to express authentic manhood or womanhood in a godly way that we would then consider some of these helpful and culturally specific stereotypes, such as to protect, to serve, to love. I'll give you some examples. Should Bob, a Christian man, wear a skirt? Well, the Bible does not say, thou shalt not wear a skirt. Maybe. Deuteronomy 22, which we already read, I don't know. But in Ireland, it would be fine to wear a kilt. In Dallas, this would not be wise or faithful. Context. Should Billy's Christian parents let him wear pink? The Bible does not say thou shalt not wear pink as kids. In 1900, pink was a boy color. It would still be okay, though, in our day, to explain to Billy that pink is a more normal color in our day for girls and in our culture and that you love him and that you are so proud that God has made him a boy. That's okay. We're not throwing away all stereotypes just because there's some abuse of stereotypes or patterns. A faithful Christian response would be to understand that gender stereotypes are not all bad. They can be unhelpful, unbiblical, harmful. However, wanting boys to be boys, men to be men, girls to be girls, women to be women is right and good. The solution to the abuse of something is not the abandonment, but rather the proper use of that thing. Ephesians 4.29 is helpful. As we think about the things we say and the ways we might in helpful or harmful ways reinforce stereotypes. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's talk about preferred pronouns. A faithful Christian response to these things, right? And now just to pronouns. Let me ask you this. How does it make you feel when someone who knows you persistently calls you the sex opposite to what you believe yourself to be. Regardless of why you might believe yourself to be that sex, how does it make you feel when someone does that? I'm not saying that answers the question, but I'm saying I think that should be thought through and felt before proceeding. Some Christians reject using preferred pronouns ever on the basis of two reasons, and I've read up a lot about this and just looked at what people think and their views. And The two basic reasons are, one, that it's lying. They, they would say it's just lying. And lying's always wrong. There you go. Another would be, it reinforces and capitulates a harmful worldview, even harmful for that person. And so, we cannot have part in it. All right. Other Christians 
They accept using preferred pronouns on the basis of, here's some of the reasons, hospitality, the basis of respect, the basis of outreach, to gain a hearing, to not break relationship right out of the gate, on the basis of discipleship. Becoming holy is a process. Who here is completely holy? On the basis of the flexibility of language, they would say, Christians from this perspective would say, well, let's be consistent. If I said right now, hey guys, listen, listen guys, all the women are not offended. So we're sometimes flexible with masculine and feminine pronouns in some spaces, so why not be willing to do that when it's showing love to someone else? Okay. Those are the two views. I think this is a wisdom matter. I don't have a verse that says, this is what you should do in 2023 when you're asked by your workplace to use preferred pronouns. It's not there. Personally, I think most of the time, it would be unhelpful to engage in using preferred pronouns. That's what I think personally. I could definitely see a scenario where a Christian, myself, or another Christian may at first use a preferred pronoun to keep the relationship intact for a future conversation filled with grace and truth. If that's the case, then it's on me or it's on a Christian to be willing to follow through in a reasonable time frame. That's my view. Colossians 4 is helpful. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. All right? Now let's talk about transitioning. Faithful Christian responses to these matters. Now transitioning. This is when someone wants to become and acts toward becoming a different Gender than their birth sex. Why? Because they feel incongruence. Because they feel that awful feeling that I described to you of gender dysphoria. And listen, because they feel alienated from the body that God gave them. And just remember with our Bibles before us that sin and the fallenness of our world creates alienation. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve alienated from one another and alienated from God. We are alienated from ourselves because of the fall. Everyone is affected. That's why people transition. Carrie, she says, as soon as she had questions about her gender, she was pushed to start hormones and surgery. She says, and I quote, if I was trans... And my therapist never gave me the impression that I might not be. My options were one, transition now, two, transition later, or three, live an unhappy life and maybe commit suicide. This is why people would transition. They're being counseled that that is the way to flourish. Professor and author Denny Burke says, the world is telling us and telling people to take steps to conform the body to the gender-confused mind rather than conforming the mind to what is not confused but is very clearly revealed by the body. 
Walt, a man who started cross-dressing, got reassignment surgery, lived eight years, then became a follower of Christ, and he transitioned back to being a man. He says, and I quote, the restoration of my sanity would only come by reversing the gender change and going back to living as the male God has made me to be. I was born a man. I was still a man. My gender has never changed. Here's the thing, and I want to quote an author, Sam Alberry. Bodily brokenness of any kind, if we have eyes to see, can point us to the broken body of Christ. And through that brokenness, to the eventual restoration and healing that comes through Christ. Embracing Christ doesn't guarantee resolution in this life to the bodily brokenness we experience. But listen, it does give us a sure and confident hope that we will have a perfect relationship with our body in the world to come. So what is a faithful Christian response? It's to offer that truth to people and to walk alongside them as they seek that truth out for themselves. So not to just sort of share the truth bomb from a distance. Is that clear? A Christian response is to love people where they are. With grace and truth, counsel people in their sense of alienation and dysphoria towards God's true best for their ultimate flourishing, which is found in Christ alone and in the transforming power of the gospel alone. Colossians 1 is helpful. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death on the cross in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before Him. Good. So we shared the lie. I'm not going to read it again because it's not worth reading again, and you'll hear it you know, as soon as you leave church in the world. Your body's an irrelevant factor. But we don't agree. We don't believe it. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We have a high view of the body. The truth is this, and here it is, that God made you and your body in His image as male or female. And we most honor ourselves and God when we live out this identity, this gender identity that God has given to us in our bodies. Let's apply this real quick. A few quick things. We love to turn sometimes to the book of Acts One of the first and great um, occasions of evangelism, of sharing the faith in Acts, is a guy named Philip. And he goes and shares the gospel with someone who is called a eunuch. Hello. What? (laughs) It's like, hey, uh, what is that? Well, it's not a trans person. It wouldn't be faithful to bring our term from 2023 back then. It's maybe, probably not an intersex person, but it's definitely not a gender-conforming in a normal way person. Anyways, Acts 8, 
34, and the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet Isaiah say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going, watch this, along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. I think the application is that we welcome people the way Christ has welcomed us. And I would just say to three different types of people this morning, perhaps, to the to the non-Christian who struggles with these trans issues, just know Jesus made you. That He gets you. That He loves you. That He died for you. And that the church, while not perfect, is a place where you will find grace, where you will find good people, where you will find help to follow Jesus in a way that honors your body and the Lord. To the Christian person who struggles as well with with these issues of transgenderism, listen, Jesus made you. He gets you. He loves you. He died for you. And the listen, you know, and you know this if you're a Christian. The only Jesus you have is the Jesus of the Bible. And Jesus calls you to follow him to be holy as he is holy. Jesus calls you, Christian, to not any longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but yes, to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So, to the Christian, the member of our church, or the Christian listening to this, maybe who is not struggling personally, but perhaps is encountering people who are, at the gym, at work, at school, at home, in your family, at church, or even on your social media feed with what you say on social media where you don't realize you are encountering people that have this struggle and sarcastic and unhelpful words that you might say do not build up. Here's what I would say to you, and I'm saying this to me. Preach the gospel to yourself. Listen to people. Slow down. Be safe. Be compassionate. You can unconditionally love a person without unconditionally affirming their worldview. Serve people. Be full of grace and truth to people. Be Jesus to people. That's our prayer. I want to pray now and ask the worship team to come back forward.